turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. As you're turning there, uh, I want to ask you a a serious question. Have you ever felt like you were just under pressure? Uh, maybe, Maybe this year you've been under some pressure. Maybe some of you in your personal life, uh, issues regarding family members, loved ones, maybe battling illness or situations at work. You say, you know what? I feel like I'm under pressure. My life is in a pressure cooker right now. I think that all of us have been there at various points, and that's something that we all can identify with. You know, my wife has one of these Instapots at home that she uses to cook a lot of, uh, most of the time when we use it, it's around Sunday lunch. And so sometimes she'll put a a pot roast in that Instapot or uh, some beans or something like that. And you know that it's, it's basically just a pressure cooker of sorts. And the science behind that little Instapot is fascinating. Um, What's interesting is that it's airtight, and because it's airtight, it allows the pressure uh, to build up as the water on the inside comes to a boil. And the steam that's trapped causes the internal uh, temperature in that pot to rise beyond what is normally capable due to normal room pressure. And so the point is, in that Instapot, the pressure increases the boiling point. Now, that's an important illustration, I think, as it pertains to life. Oftentimes, pressure has a way of causing the boiling point in our lives to rise. Uh, Sometimes uh, pressure begins to rise. We consider all that's going on in our world. You couple that with problems at home, problems at church, problems in the nation, Um, the pressure is intended to bring us to a point of prayer, folks, as believers. God uses pressure in our lives to bring us not so much to our boiling point, but to our breaking point. And so that's where Daniel is in Daniel chapter 9. He's been a man who's been living out his days in exile. Uh, He has been given spectacular visions concerning the future, He's a man of faith, he's a man of prayer, and here in chapter 9, in particular, we see that Daniel is a man on his knees. In many ways, prayer is the barometer that measures the intensity of your spiritual life. And at the same time, it's also a thermometer that affects the temperature of things in your life spiritually. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that prayer is the highest activity of the human soul And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. He said, there's nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Before him, great Puritan pastor John Owen said that what an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. That's a convicting thought. But as we come to Daniel chapter 9, within this passage, you and I are privileged to eavesdrop on a man of God who's down on his knees. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit allows us to peer into uh, the, the prayer life of the prophet Daniel. And most of this chapter here in chapter 9 is a prayer that Daniel prayed in his day. 
Now, by the time we get to this passage, here in the chapter, Daniel is a man who's in his early 80s. So he spent the vast majority of his life walking with God. Here's a man who knew God. And he walked with God during a very difficult time frame. It was during the Babylonian exile, surrounded by the pressure of a pagan society. We saw how early on in his life, Daniel resolved to keep his mind and his heart devoted to God, even though he was faced with constant pressure to conform to Babylon's way of life. He didn't buckle under the pressure. Uh, Instead, he blossomed under the pressure, and largely it was due to the fact that he was a man of prayer. In fact, so committed was Daniel to his prayer life that he was willing to be cast into a lion's den rather than to abandon his prayer altar. And sometimes we forget the whole reason that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den in chapter 6 was because he was a man of prayer. Even when it became illegal for him to do so, he kept right on praying because his allegiance to God ultimately was the most important thing in his life. Now, I want you to pick up there in chapter 9, verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who were near and those who were far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. In other words, Daniel's just simply saying, the reason that we've been brought to Babylon as exiles to begin with was because of our own disobedience. We've sinned against God as a people. We've despised the word of God and the ministry of the prophets that God sent over and over again. We turned our back on God, and as a result, here we are. That's what Daniel is saying here. Verse 11, he says, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. 
For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. <laughs> Daniel's like, we're looking around, here we are in exile, but we've not repented. We're experiencing dreadful circumstances brought on by our disobedience, but we've not come to the place of repentance. Isn't that interesting? I think there's a word for us in this text. Let he who has ears hear. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who were around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now let me tell you, that's a prayer right there. That is a prayer of a man who is honest as he's on his face, down on his knees before God in a place of brokenness. And so for just a few minutes, I want to I wanna preach from this subject, the prayer of Daniel. And I really believe that there is much that we can glean from this prayer here in chapter 9 as it relates to our own prayer lives as the people of God. Now, from all that we've seen about Daniel's life, we can sum it up by saying that he's a man uh, uh, whose love for God is unwavering. And it's to this man that God gave visions concerning the future. Uh, we've considered those uh, in chapters 7 and 8 God's going to give Daniel additional visions at the close of chapter 9 and really throughout the end of the book, chapters 10, 11, and 12. But in between these monumental visions which serve as prophecy for the future, we're presented with the prayer of Daniel right here in between these, uh, these, these massive important prophecies that Daniel had been given. Now, a lot of times we'll come to Daniel chapter 9 and we'll want to jump right to the prophecy at the end of the chapter, the prophecy of the 70 weeks and God's future plan for Israel and how all of that sort of provides a prophetic framework for understanding the tribulation and Antichrist and the coming of Christ. And it really is one of the most important prophetic passages in all of the Bible because of what it reveals about the future. However, 
What we fail to realize is that it was given to Daniel in response to his prayer here in the first part of the chapter. Because by the time you get down to verse number 20, Daniel is going to be given an answer to his prayer as the angel Gabriel comes and gives him the vision concerning the 70 weeks. And so one person has said that this shows us as far as our walk with God is concerned, more necessary than the details of the future is to understand the vital importance of prayer in our lives as Christian men and women. And so for Daniel, prophecy did not fuel his speculation it fueled his prayer life. And so if we come to the book of Daniel or a study of Daniel and these prophetic sections that we've been looking at, if all that does is fuel our speculation about the end times, we've completely missed the point of the book of Daniel. Because the the, the truth of the matter is that this this, uh, prophecy concerning the future has been given uh, to affect us spiritually, even now, in the here and now. It's to impact my prayer life. It's to deepen my walk of faith. It's to lead me to be a man who has been, uh, who's confident in a God who's sovereign over the circumstances of life. So as we begin looking at this prayer of Daniel, uh, what is it that makes his prayer so powerful? What can we learn in our own lives about prayer as we look at Daniel's prayer? Now, there are five principles that I really want to point out from this chapter. I'm not going to be able to get to all of these this morning, but we'll come back next week and look at uh, the ones we don't get to. But uh, number one, notice with me that Daniel's prayer is important because it's informed by God's word. Uh, Daniel's prayer is scriptural. Uh, Daniel's prayer is sort of born out of time that he had been spending with God in the pages of God's word. And so that's an important principle for us in our own prayer lives. Is your prayer life scriptural? Uh, Does the truth of scripture and the truth of who God is, does it it saturate the prayers that you pray? I've heard it said this way, effective prayer is scripture-fed and spirit-led. And that's certainly true of Daniel's prayer in this passage. You see, without the knowledge of the truth of God's word, we pray from a place of ignorance but not Daniel. Daniel is praying with a mind that's been informed by the truth of the word of God. He's well aware of God's will as it's been laid down in God's word. And so you look at verse number one, uh, we're sort of given a historical marker here where we're told that it was in the first year of King Darius that Daniel makes a discovery from God's word. Uh, He says there in verse two, I perceived in the books... So it's interesting, there's about 12 years uh, of time that have passed between the vision in chapter 8 and the prayer that Daniel's praying in chapter 9. And yet, even though there's about a dozen years between these chapters, the last verse of chapter 8 in many ways sort of serves as a, a really good context to understand where Daniel is spiritually in his life. After Daniel received the vision of the future, Verse 27 of the eighth chapter says that he was overcome and he was sick for a period of time. In other words, what he understood affected him physically. Uh, He then went about the king's business even though he was appalled by the vision and there were parts that he just didn't understand. 
And you fast forward 12 years later, and here he is, a man in his early 80s. What is he doing? Well, verse 2 says that he's searching through the books or the scrolls. Now, he didn't have a leather-bound copy of God's Word like you have and like I have. But what he did have were, were scrolls of the prophets that the Jews had, had taken with them into exile. And one of those scrolls that Daniel is studying is the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, he would have ministered uh, in Judah, the southern kingdom, prior to the Babylonian invasion. Uh, more than likely, Daniel would have been just a wee little boy uh, on the back end of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah began preaching in the days of King Josiah, was 627 B.C., and his ministry continued some time after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah the prophet, uh, you know that he was given the unpopular task of warning the nation of the coming judgment of God in the form of the Babylonians. It was Jeremiah who called the people of God to repentance. But Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because the people didn't want to hear what he had to say. They refused to repent. They persecuted Jeremiah. Jeremiah went against the grain. He was preaching the truth, but nobody wanted to hear it. And so now you fast forward to more than 60 years later, here Daniel is in the city of Babylon and he's studying the scroll of Jeremiah. Well, what was it exactly that got his attention? You know, we weren't there to peer over his shoulder to see what he was reading, but I imagine that he was reading along somewhere about Jeremiah chapter 25. I want you to go back to the prophet Jeremiah for just a minute. Go to chapter 25. I want you to see this. Now, Daniel wouldn't have had chapter and verse divisions to make this convenient like we, we have now, but he had been studying the prophecy of Jeremiah uh, through all of the scrolls, and uh, he had come to this passage in chapter 25 where the prophet had been warning the people about the coming judgment of the Babylonians. Because of their refusal to repent, to humble themselves, God said that he was going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar and use Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his people. Look down at verse number eight in that text. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that interesting that God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his own servant? especially when you understand that Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan idolater who's worshiping a false god, who thinks that he is invincible, who's defying the God of Israel, and yet God is referring to him as his servant. It's simply because God is sovereign. God is using Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument to achieve God's own purposes. God says, I'm gonna bring Nebuchadnezzar into the land. I'll bring him against this land and devote them to destruction. I'll banish from the land the voice of mirth and happiness. Verse 11, he says, the whole land will become a waste. Now look at the last part of verse 11. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now that got Daniel's attention. Verse 12, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So 
God's going to visit on the Babylonians. He's going to give them a taste of their own medicine, but not before he uses the Babylonians to achieve his own purposes. So Jeremiah had warned Judah of coming judgment. That judgment came. Uh, The Jews were carried away into captivity. They would be held there for some 70 years. Daniel had lived through almost all 70 of those years. It had been a difficult time. And yet, as he kept reading, he came to another section uh, where the prophet had written a letter to the exiles. In fact, go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Just turn a few more chapters over. In chapter 29, uh, this is a letter that Jeremiah sends from Jerusalem to the exiles who had just been carried away into captivity there in Babylon. And really, it was a letter from God to his people And in this letter, God gave his people some instructions to follow during their days in exile. And in this letter, listen, they would discover the truth that God does not bring us into a future that he has not already prepared for us. (laughs) And that'll bless you if you think about that for just a second. A lot of times we fear the future, don't we? We're terribly afraid of what might be just over the horizon. We think about 2020 and how difficult this year's been. Who knows what 2021 may hold, you know? I mean, the flying monkeys may come from the witch's castle in 2021 and carry us all away. But the bottom line is God doesn't bring his people into a future that he has not already prepared. And that's what this letter from Jeremiah to the exiles is intended to to emphasize, Look at verse four in that chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were sort of strutting their stuff, claiming that they were the ones who destroyed the city. They were the ones who carried the Jews into captivity. Uh, Their God was superior to the God of Israel. But here God is saying, I've sent you into exile. I'm working my plan and planning my work. That's what God is saying here. I've sent you there, and God is going to use them even to be a witness, even under those difficult circumstances. You know, they could have responded a number of ways to their exile. You know, they've been cast away or carried away from everything that they were familiar with. They were out of their comfort zone. Now in a very hostile, difficult place, the culture had changed drastically from everything that they knew. They could have lived out their days in isolation, but that's not what God wanted them to do, sort of retreat from the world around them. Or they could have responded by assimilation into the culture of Babylon and just become Babylonian. That's not what God wanted his people to do. Instead, what he intended his people to do was infiltrate the society of Babylon. Uh, He wanted his people to serve as witnesses. By the way, that ought to be a good word for us in these days. It'd be very easy for us to want to isolate ourselves from a difficult world, a post-Christian, post-modern context. But that's not what God's called his people to do. Uh, Neither does God want us to adopt the lifestyle and the behavioral patterns and the belief systems of the culture of Babylon around us. But what he does want us to do is be salt and light, to infiltrate society, to be witnesses who make disciples, who point people to the hope that we have in Christ. 
So Daniel and the exiles had been there under divine arrangement. They were in a strange place. They were outnumbered. Their worship of God was frowned upon. Their lifestyle as God's people was completely foreign to their Babylonian captors. But God had given them his word. And so what does he tell them in this letter? Uh, He says, well, in Babylon, you need to settle down. Look at verse 5. He says, build houses. Live in those houses, plant gardens, eat their produce. In other words, settle down because y'all are going to be here for a long time. False prophets had been coming along and, and you know, Jeremiah points this out, telling God's people that it would only be for a year or two or just a matter of months before God would uh, visit the Babylonians in judgment and bring his people back. And the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, no, this is going to be, it's going to be a long haul for you. It's going to be 70 years Many of those Jews would die in captivity and never see Jerusalem again. So they were to settle down. And then in Babylon, God said, you need to focus on your family. Build strong families. Verse 6, take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words... The culture of Babylon is going to be tough. It's going to be a hard climate. And only strong families could weather such times. Imagine their kids came home from playing in the streets with other children, maybe Babylonian children. Jewish dads might ask their children what they learned while they were out playing with their friends. And I could imagine one of those little Jewish boys or girls said, hey, little Tommy told me that Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, is stronger than our god, Yahweh. Is that true, daddy? And dad says, no, son, let me tell you about our god. Let me tell you about the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what those Jews and those families were confronted with in Babylon afforded Jewish parents an opportunity to teach the truth and reinforce the truth in the minds of their children during their time in exile. Folks, if we ain't discipling our children, the world around us certainly will. If we're not laying down for our children what's most important in life, the world around them certainly will. And may they hear from us and see modeled in our lives what it means to be a surrendered, obedient disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God says in Babylon, you need to get involved. Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. The word for welfare there is the the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace, wholeness. Not peace in the sense of the absence of conflict, but peace in the sense of wholeness. Uh, It's this idea of what God had in mind for the world when he created the world in Genesis 1 and 2. So God's saying, listen, as you're there in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city. Get involved in society life. Don't change your beliefs and adopt the belief systems of Babylon, but get involved in the society and in the government and in the spheres of of culture for the sake of my name. That's what God is saying here. Seek the welfare of the city. Don't isolate, don't assimilate, but infiltrate. That's what God's saying. And then he goes on and says, in Babylon, they were to pray. Uh, Again, verse 7, pray to the Lord God on the city's behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. 
Now imagine how shocking that would have been if you were a Jew. Lord, are you serious? I mean, are we really to pray for this wicked place, this same nation that destroyed our way of life, that destroyed your temple, these very people who ransacked our homes and murdered our children, carried us away into exile, are we to, are we to pray for these people who stole our country from us? That's exactly what God is telling his people to do in exile. And in that way, uh, God is wringing the self-righteousness out of the hearts of his people. Because desperation would do for his people what prosperity would never have accomplished. When they were in the land and everything was going fine and good and they were comfortable, they got spiritually complacent. But now that they're in a tough place, now that the tables have turned, now that they're outnumbered in the culture, this is going to bring them to a place of desperation and God is going to have their attention like never before. But you see, God doesn't stop there in this letter. He tells them that in Babylon, they need to remember his promises. God wasn't finished with his people. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... God says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or plans for your good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, the thing is, as he's reading this, Daniel realizes that the time for the return of God's people was drawing near. It was time for God to honor his promise to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. God said for 70 years, I'm going to allow Babylon to hold you in captivity, but then I'm going to, I'm going to visit them in judgment. Well, Daniel had just seen that come to pass. The kingdom had passed from the Babylonians to the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel knew that at the end of the 70 years, there would be the destruction of Babylon. And Daniel had a front row seat to see that happen. So the next thing he knew that was on God's calendar as far as what God has promised was that he was going to bring the Jews back to their homeland. <laughs> So he's reading all of this. He's confronted with all of this from the truth of God's word. You get down to verse 12 and 13 there in Jeremiah 29. God says, then you will call upon me. You will come and pray to me. I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And as Daniel's reading that, it affected him so deep within his spirit. What does he do? But he falls to his knees and he begins to pray in response. And the prayer that he prays is this prayer that's recorded there in Daniel chapter 9. It's his reaction to the truth that he read from God's word. Now listen, this is an important lesson for us as far as our prayer lives are concerned. Does the truth of God's word, the promises that have been revealed in God's word, do we so believe those promises and we're so moved and gripped and confident in those promises that those promises bring us to our knees, to a place of desperation, wherein we cry out, God, would you do what you said you're going to do? God has said in his word that he'll bring revival 
in response to repentance and prayer. That's a promise that he's laid down in his word. Second Chronicles 7, 14. Do we believe it enough to hit our knees and get on our faces before God and cry out to him in faith? May we be like Daniel in that way. So true prayer, it's got to be informed by the truth of God's word. Now, there's a second thing that I want you to see very quickly, and it's this. Daniel's prayer, it's conformed to God's will. Not only is it informed from the truth of God's word, but it's conformed to God's will as revealed in his word. So he's praying on the basis of what he knows to be in the will of God. You say, well, how does he know that it's the will of God? Because God has revealed it in his word. You want to know what God wants? Read your Bible. Get in the word and see what God's heart is. So Daniel's aligning his heart with the will of God, and he's praying on that basis. He's not trying to get God to conform to his own will, but rather Daniel is bringing himself into conformity with God's will. And that's what all true prayer understands. In fact, isn't that how Jesus uh, taught his disciples how to pray? In the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says when you pray, listen, you shouldn't just rush into the presence of God with your own grocery list. God's not a cosmic bellhop. God's not some, you know, magic eight ball in the sky or a vending machine. He's the divine architect of history. He's the omnipotent one who rules and overrules. He's the sovereign one who is king. And Jesus teaches us to pray. When we come before God in prayer, let's remember just who it is that we're calling upon. This great and holy and awesome God. His name is infinitely uh, majestic. We can't even begin to imagine it. Your kingdom come, Lord. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And Jesus says that prayer is the means by which we align our will with the will of God. And so prayer is important because that's exactly what it does. As I pray, God brings me in line with his heart and with his desires. Verse 3, Daniel says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. The fact that he turns his face to the Lord, this implies submission to God's revealed will. And once he's in the right posture before God, he then began seeking God by prayer. He's not so much seeking an answer as much as he is seeking God. He's not so much seeking a blessing as he is seeking the source of all true blessing. And that's what prayer is, folks. Prayer is the heart of our relationship. Prayer is us communing with our Heavenly Father. Prayer is intimacy with God. And that's all been made possible because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight myself in the Lord, that means that I make him the object of my affection. It's to love him above everything else. To only want what he wants. 
And when I'm wanting him above everything else, even my own personal comfort and safety, when I'm wanting him and him alone, it's then that I've been brought into alignment with his desires. And only then can I really begin to pray rightly. You say, does that mean I shouldn't ask God for specific requests and things that are near and dear to my heart? Absolutely not. But first things first. We've got to be in the right attitude as far as prayer is concerned. And when I'm in the right attitude before God, then I'll be praying the right petitions. And let me tell you something. If if you want answers to your prayer, you ought to pray specific requests that are clearly outlined in God's word. Pray back to God what God has already said that he's going to do. That's what Daniel's doing. In fact, when we're praying to the Lord, thy kingdom come, hasn't God already said that the kingdom is going to come? No matter how bad things may get in life around us, the promise is the kingdom belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing can stop that. And knowledge of that brings me confidence, which then brings me to my knees, and I know that because I'm asking in accordance with the revealed will of God, he's hearing me when I pray. And that's how you spending time in God's word will bring you great confidence in your prayer life and in your walk with God. Now, this is important for us to remember, especially when we don't know what to pray for. Have you ever just been so burdened and facing pressure to such a degree that, man, you didn't even know what to pray for. You just sensed your own inadequacy. You sensed the depth of your own need, the urgency of the hour. It brought you to your knees, and maybe you didn't even know what to say, but just say, Lord, be God. Lord, do what you've said you're going to do. That's a, that's, that, listen, that's a leaf that we can take from Daniel's book as far as prayer is concerned. When I ask God to act in accordance to his revealed will, that's a prayer that God will answer, let me tell you. For example, Philippians chapter 1, where the scripture says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's a promise from God. And when I pray that God used the circumstances of my life to conform me, to mold me, to shape me into what you want me to be, that's a prayer that God will answer. Or when I go to God in prayer and I recognize that he's my shepherd like the 23rd Psalm reveals him to be, even when I'm walking through the long, dark valley, the shadow of death, I don't have to fear any evil because I know my shepherd is with me. And listen, that's a prayer that God delights in answering. If you feel alone, if you feel the darkness encroaching, oh, listen, little sheep, cry out to your shepherd. Be encouraged in his presence. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Daniel's in Babylon. Daniel's faced pressure, but man, Daniel doesn't buckle under it all. He doesn't cave into despair but rather it drives Daniel to his knees in prayer. And it ought to do the same thing in my life and your life as believers. The times in which we live, the problems that all of us are facing and encountering, this is not cause for us to cave into depression, to throw our hands up in disgust, to become bitter. But listen, this is an opportunity for God's people to come before a sovereign, omnipotent God on our knees 
And like Daniel, we can say, Lord, would you do what you've promised to do? Prayer has got to be informed by God's word. It's got to be conformed to God's will. And later on, we're even going to see as Daniel continues to pray, he begins his prayer by just remembering God's character. He cries out to him being the great and gracious God that he is. You know where we see that most clearly? The cross of Jesus. The greatness and the holiness of God and the mercy and the grace of God are clearly on display at the cross. Here you have an infinitely holy God who's got to punish sin. A God who hates sin. A God who has to meet sin with the fierceness of his wrath. But that wrath was poured out on Jesus who is my sin bearer. Who died as mine and your substitute on the cross. So that at the same time God could be gracious and merciful and forgive sinners like us. If you don't know Jesus today, I pray that while you have an opportunity right now, you confess your sin, place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Lord, thank you for your word and for the prayer of Daniel in this passage. And Lord, there's so much that we can glean for our own prayer lives as we look to this, this man of prayer who was not perfect, but he's a man of God on his knees. And Lord, you've extended the same invitation to us as your people. In chaotic days, Lord, may we not cave under the weight of it all and the pressure of it all. But Lord, as the pressure increases our boiling point, may it drive us to our knees in prayer. Lord, we want to be a praying people. A spirit-empowered church living lives on mission for Christ. And we know that it begins, Lord, on our knees. So that's what we do this morning. I know, Lord, that under the sound of my voice, there are people facing all kinds of pressure. Lord, may they be encouraged with the truth of your word this morning. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.